Hello and welcome to the BS Degrees. I'm Sans. And I'm Bells. Yay! So the topic that we wanted to cover today is with regards to wealth and power and their position in society and how it's integrated into the social environment in these, what I'm going to again call poison ivy institutions. It's a subject that is very much on the forefront of our minds. I think every day for anyone who actually lives and breathes the Ivy environment as they are there at the institution, but also continues to actually haunt us as we have left. Um, we continue to hear about class action lawsuits, about um, alumni, notables or notorious alumni. We continue to hear about the admission scandals that are coming from these schools. It's something that definitely continues to be an issue and something that society is interested in hearing about and definitely something that we noticed while we were at our chosen poison ivy as well. So as the intention was to share a little bit more about our personal experiences, Bells, I wanted to ask you a question to start us off. Is that okay? That is perfectly okay. All right. So I know that we've actually compared notes on this personally, but for our listeners, can you share a bit about what social class or bracket you saw yourself in when you started out when we met each other freshman year? Yeah, that's a hard one to answer, too, because I think one of the things that really shaped my experience growing up was this perennial sense that I was kind of an outsider wherever I went. So growing up, um, to really answer your question, I would put my family in working class firmly. I mean, we're an immigrant family. I was a second generation immigrant. Um, my parents, when they came over, they didn't come over as um, international students or exchange students. They didn't know English. So they were working menial jobs and kind of acquired English along the way. And so we grew up with not a lot of money. Um, and we actually also received federal assistance. And so I think that kind of put us in an interesting position with regards to the people that we spent most of our time around because um, I went to, I eventually went to a public high school and we had a wide range of incomes. But before that, I went to um, a number of other schools where largely speaking, people were a little bit better off than we were. Um, and we also attended sort of extracurricular activities out in the suburbs of where we lived. And I think it was very clear to us that while those people welcomed us warmly into their community, we never quite fit in because they were more comfortably affluent than we were. So um, social class was one of those things that, I could never put a finger on, never quite name, but was always lurking in the background of my childhood. And ironically, when I got to college, I actually felt more at home in some ways because the people that I went to college with, many of them were classmates of mine from high school who were also lower income. And we had all kind of come in on the same scholarship for urban low-income students. So even though I knew I was not um, 
from as affluent a background as many of my college classmates that didn't bother me and if anything I felt very fortunate in a way because I had gotten a generous amount of funding to go to college and I think one of the really interesting as a sort of aside one of the really interesting and unfortunate things about the American education system is that I anecdotally at least I've heard that middle class families feel shafted a lot Um, if something like 40,000 and below was considered low income and between 40 and 60 you would get partial financial aid but not full and then above 60k you were not you're no longer eligible for financial aid so that's kind of an awkward place to be and so I was cognizant that even though I didn't have economic privilege I did have the privilege of um, being a beneficiary of a lot of aid so that was kind of how I came into college. Thanks for sharing and I'm Really glad to hear. I think we covered a little bit about finding your place in college and, um, you know, finding those places where you're safe, communities and groups of people with who you can affiliate and who seem to understand you. So it sounds like you definitely found that. And that is a really amazing thing. So I think you also have a really positive perspective looking back. Yes and no. Let me put it that way. I think in a way, getting financial aid freed me up to pursue things that I maybe wouldn't have felt I had the latitude to pursue if my parents were paying for all of it. You know, Um, I think I would have felt an even keener sense of obligation to my parents to do exactly what they wanted me to do in college. They had pretty concrete ideas of what could constituted success for them and you know in the years since then I and my parents have talked about how that really came from a place of them wanting the best for me at the time it felt stifling and I think in some ways knowing that my money to go to college came from strangers and not from them meant that I could do whatever the heck I wanted in a way so I took classes that you know had nothing to do with the lucrative career that my parents envisioned for me. I felt a sense of academic exploration and freedom. And I think in some ways that's the best side of financial aid. That's the best that financial aid offers that um, it enables students of lesser means to be able to experience that freedom, you know, um, without maybe, or to, a less degree experiencing some of the pressures that can come with that. Um, I do think from a sort of 30,000 foot view, given that my family was poor growing up, it was always in the back of my mind, like, what am I going to do when I grow up that is going to be able to put food on the table? Right. Um, And I think my struggle ended up being a lot more day to day in a way there wasn't necessarily this idea of I'm going to find a job that pays me six figures. That wasn't really the, I mean, certainly there was a pressure there for that, but that wasn't the um, kind of solution that I envisioned. What I was really used to was actually scrimping and saving. So all throughout college, I worked uh, work study jobs and, you know, my parents were very kind in paying for my housing, my food and all of my petty expenses. I, I cared for myself and it became really important to me 
once I got a job, my first job in college, that I did that, the sense of financial independence. Um, And not only that, but I think given that my parents didn't grow up with a lot, there was always a sense that you needed something in the bank for a rainy day. And so I was very frugal, maybe to a fault. And so, you know, in the sort of everyday kind of living and transactions, that was something that was always important to me. Um, And that in a way, you know, put a cap on things I could do. I wasn't going to go clubbing every night, throwing a lot lot of money at alcohol and, and things like that. And if you can do that, and that's something that you like, more power to you. It didn't feel like an option for me. Um, and again, I was lucky. You had already said I was lucky in that I was around people who felt the same. We came from, you know, not a lot. And none of us were in the market to be spending tons of money on ourselves or on hedonic pleasure activities. And so we, you know, were on the lookout for stuff that didn't cost money and, you know, things like that. Um but I think if I had come in by myself, would my life have been a lot harder? Heck yes. And that's a good point. So uh, I think this is a, a great situation to celebrate just for a moment. You know, sometimes it all turns out well. And it's important to remember that because I know sometimes we can be quite focused on the things that are not right because we're focused on making them right or they should right. be right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, you know, there there were some aspects that, you know, everyone is different and you were comfortable where you were and others are comfortable where they are and there is no harm in that at all. So what is the first time then that you were made aware of social class and its differences and its impact in college? Yes. So again, I, it's a sort of an interesting turn of events that I was quite fortunate to come in with folks who were financially on the same page as me and in agreement that we literally couldn't afford to do certain things. And so we were on the lookout for stuff that, you know, um, was financially feasible for all of us. And so it, it's, it's strange that um, all's well that ends well. I, I did have this group to fall back on and um, that kind of led to an interesting turn of events where I was sort of insulated from a lot of the excesses of wealth that I later kind of heard about secondhand from other people. Um, So I was not part of Greek life. I was not very active in a lot of larger organizations where dues might've been expected to be paid or, or, you know, activities required a lot of, you know, sort of footing your own bill and, or that there was just a lot of social stuff happening. Um, I, you know, didn't go on a lot of expensive vacations for spring break and things like that. And I wasn't around a lot of people for whom that was the norm. I did hear sort of smatterings of it here and there. And what I heard was stuff that, you know, for some people, again, it's their sort of regular. And for me, it was like foreign. Um, Some of the stuff I'd hear about was sort of like, you know, vacationing in the DR, Puntacana or St. Kitts for spring break and, you know, jetting off to a ski chalet for the weekend or um I, I don't know like going out every night and racking up bills of bills worth dozens of dollars in terms of alcohol and food and things like that and throwing parties every now and then um where you had to pay cover and you know doing bars and things like that um 
And I, I want to be careful here because I also don't want to perpetuate a stereotype um, because yes, there are people who live this way. And yes, at the same time, I think it can be easy to kind of, um, I don't know, come off as judgmental when you're from the outside looking in. And so for me, I'm not, you know, poo-pooing this lifestyle, just so much to say that um, it wasn't something that was financially feasible for me to live this way. And it was also, you know, incidentally not an interest that I had for myself personally. But I had also heard about other folks who came in on a low-income background and who did want to have a really thriving social life, who did want to go out every night, who did want to join Greek life. And um, their financial situation was very hard to navigate relative to their interests and desires. Um, Some people racked up intense credit card debt. Um, Some people couldn't pursue the opportunities that they really wanted to. And that, to me, bittersweet, you know. Um, And there's also, I think, a sense of having to keep up with the Joneses, you know, And again, I feel lucky because I feel like I was part of a friends group where we were all just kind of very open about the fact that we didn't have a lot. Um, And I can imagine if you come in and you're one out of 10 people who, you know, grew up on food stamps and everybody around you is dishing out hundreds for sunglasses and dinners and drinks and whatever, that you would feel a real sense of shame and not being able to do the same. And it's something that you wouldn't be able to introduce and talk about and maybe feel understood or validated for. And you have to hide it. Um, So, you know, that's sort of my encounters with it. A lot of it was, in a way, secondhand. And I think I want to add, too, that, like, I think what's hard about this is um, sort of where you go from there, right? And, you know, this is maybe jumping ahead a bit, but I think um, when we talk about financial aid, you know, this is about the cost of tuition, right? And every now and then, you know, depending on where you go, they'll also cover room and board. And I think um, that's sort of the bare bones, but what about the sort of having a life, you know? Um, And that's what college in many ways is all about. And I think there maybe are some conversations that happen every now and then of like, well, just don't spend so much money then. You know, what are you doing all this for? Um, And I think that is sort of a reductionist take on it. That like, yeah, you want friends, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to join Greek life. You know, some people have cultivated incredible communities of support in those settings, you know, and I think the solution is not necessarily to deprive the individual, especially if they come in not having a lot, you know, and then, I mean, if you go in the other direction, sorry, if you go in the other direction, then, then there's maybe a conversation about like, well, what if, you know, we just mandate that all Greek organizations or all major like student organizations, you know, don't ask any dues of their members or don't, require great contributions of money to throw events. But I don't know that there's a reality there, right? I don't know that that would actually be a functional solution. I think these are iniquities that start before we enter college and, you know, continue after we leave. 
in the form of credit card debt, right? Um, yeah, I. it's interesting because college is meant to be, or at least I've heard other people express it as, an intended microcosm of the world. It is not meant to be a true bubble that protects us from everything. The world... No. I've heard it argued the world is unfair and unequal, and thus college is your first taste of that. Um, but that feels brutal. It is brutal and harsh. The counter argument to that is that college is about self determination, particularly for individuals who have, by pure mental faculty and effort, made it to a school on um, financial aid. It's meant to be an equalizer. Right. So do we see that really come through if every single social aspect is then barred by a bill? Um, yes. I think in the case of Greek life, this is a huge question because Greek life is unspoken, a badge of honor on campus. Right. And different Greek institutions have different reputations, but Greek life is often seen as a group of guaranteed friends, a group of guaranteed network, and let's face it, different Greek institutions, some of them have extremely wealthy families and members behind them, um, alumni and children of wealthy families alike, which gives them the, I guess, reputation of being a place where you should go to social climb. And so it becomes a mandate, not just a social choice, but something that others might feel obliged that they have to try out for. And that's, I think, a dangerous place to go to because there's some things about hazing that I have some choice words for. But I don't know. Where do you think we should take this next? I think what you're bringing up is a really interesting kind of sticky conundrum, right? That, you know... Again, like you're you're referencing sort of the the myth of the meritocracy, right? The myth of the American meritocracy um, that you college is the great ed education and particularly higher education institutions are the great equalizer. And then you come here and you sort of like, you know, pull the curtain back and underneath it is actually all the scaffolding, right? The, the, the ugly s structure that actually no, you know, all of these sorts of um, structural inequities are still present. They informed whether you could even get in, they inform your experience being there, and they will continue to impact your experience leaving. I think in it, there's sometimes a, a sense of real despair about that, you know? Um, and so I also want to like disclaim and make clear that neither of us come from a Greek life background, right? Um, and this is not necessarily about sort of the choice of Greek life itself, so much as sort of the role of money in all of it, right? Um, and to that, I think exactly what you're saying, like, what do we do about this? You know, um, when we talk about soft power, soft economic power, and the kind of behavioral and social aspects of class, um, it's, you know, the circles that you travel in and that you have access to, you know, being in a certain fraternity, sorority or secret society is not just about, you know, the merits of the individual, though certainly those organizations are often filled with really brilliant, talented, good individuals, right, with 
really interesting personalities. It is also, I think, sometimes about the fact that your parents went there, you know, or the fact that you're, and, you know, we talk about Greek life, but we could very easily talk about just universities in general, you know, like legacy, you know, (laughs) your family has gone here for this many generations and they've always pledged X, Y, Z when they were there, you know, and this is like a time honored tradition. And then you have like the new upstart, the first generation college student, and they're trying to get their foot in the door and they're trying to navigate this social space that they've never had exposure to. And, you know, first of all, there's even just that process of navigation of like, what is the language? You know, what am I hearing? Um, There's sort of a coded, like, these are the signs and the symbols. I think it's interesting your question earlier about like, when did you first notice social class? And it's a hard one for me to answer because honestly, there was probably a ton of stuff that just went over my head, right? Um, I don't know if I mentioned this in an earlier episode, but um, partly as a function of my racial and ethnic background and partly as a function of the fact that my parents didn't take me out to eat a lot when I was a kid, because we didn't have a lot of money, but I never sat down at like a nice, like multi-silverware restaurant until I was in college. Like I didn't understand the world of having a multi-course meal and being seated by like a host and, you know, um, having very attentive service and tipping at the end of the, like, I didn't understand any of that. Um, And that's pretty basic, to be quite honest. And so how many things must you have to pick up on and learn and make mistakes about and maybe look like a fool about before you can feel like you have got your insider's card, you know? And how many mistakes can you make before people are like, oh, this person is really trying, but they're kind of a wannabe and we're going to kind of close the circle on them. You know, I don't know. I never had that happen to me. And I'm curious. I'm curious about your experiences um, because I think, again, we've talked a lot about this privately. And for you, I think you've had a different experience uh, in terms of coming in and people maybe having a perception of you and your social class. And, you know, given that I was sort of in a group where we were all kind of on the same playing field, that wasn't so much a thing, but I wonder for you about the experience of coming in and forging a social network completely from scratch and sort of how social class impacted that if you will. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, Our experiences were definitely different. I think one of the fun things that we did uh, from the beginning of our friendship was start to compare notes. Um, To give people a little bit more context to my background, I always thought of my family as working class, but also simultaneously knew that we were privileged. Um, And the reason for that is that I would say we're upper middle class, Um, my dad, um, you know, worked really hard to 
provide the family with a constant stable source of income, uh, despite what the vagaries of the industries and layoffs may have been. So as children, we were raised with, uh, you know, blissfully ignorant concept that layoffs might ever happen and that family income could be at risk. We traveled a lot for my dad's work. Um, we lived in many different countries. Um, and I went to a lot of different international schools, which my dad's company took care of, which again is a place where a lot of privileged people congregate. Um, no matter where we ended up, there was generally the feeling that my family background was more working class than some of my other classmates, for example, diplomats or other wealthy business owners. Um, but nevertheless, the baseline in most of these schools was people who were um, whose families were hired by company, companies similar to ours. In other words, there weren't any classmates of mine who were near the poverty line. So while I had lots of experience of changing friend circles, changing schools and entering new social environments, um, and I did quite struggle with that as a child because I was quite an introvert, um, College, I thought was going to be no different from that. And I actually had, I think a little bit of a shock because college was so much more a broader experience than any of my other schools. My graduating class in high school was small, under a hundred people. And college, you walk into a class of 2000 and the spectrum of people you'll meet is huge. Um, I thought it was just going to be another transition period where, you know, I spend a year being really quiet and then figure out people who I feel comfortable around and make friends and that's it. Um, I had a couple of encounters just within my first few months that really shocked me. And then within my first year and then my second year, you know, I went through things a couple of times and uh, <laughs> we can dig into those stories. Um, but because I'm an international student, um, it's pretty well known that international students don't get financial aid. And so as an international student, you're automatically grouped in the group of rich kids. Like your family paid full ride for you to get in. Thankfully, it does not automatically come with the association that you're not qualified necessarily, but it does mean that you kind of have to be both. And as an Asian, um, there's kind of that, you know, line, you could be rich mainlander Chinese or rich Singaporean, but those are both really rich cultural groups. Um, this might not have been as well known when we were in college as now when there is a movie called Crazy Rich Asians, but definitely that was still known among particularly Asian social groups. Um, and so, those are definitely subsets. Um, when I came to college, um, I, you know, try to figure things out just, you know, by organically meeting people. But I really thought that for the first time in my life, I saw community groups of students, large groups of students who were just of my racial type. And that was so different. I came from a school where there were 
no other Chinese kids in my grade. The other Chinese kids were other years. I knew all of them. Our family celebrated New Year's together. Um, like I started a student organization just so that we could do things and share our culture on campus. And all of a sudden, there were Chinese music groups, Chinese dance groups, Chinese cultural groups, people who just, you know, did this, created organizations to meet and share food, other types of Asian subtypes, actually, of Chinese, Chinese American, mainland Chinese, Taiwanese. Okay, um, I apologize, I did not mean to be offensive. I, we do not have to refer to them as Chinese, but you get the gist, you know, um, other South Asian, East Asian cultural groups. I legitimately thought that this would be a place that I would find home. Um, it did not turn out to be that way. I was apparently slightly too exotic. People did not know what kind of a subtype Dutch Chinese would be, except for an individual subtype. Um, and I dare say that the ways that these different cultural groups spend money also had a big impact on that. I, even though I grew up with all upper middle class or upper class well-to-do families, it was very clear to me, like, we are working class. My dad works and earned his money the hard way and continues to do so. We do not waste a cent of that. I think the way that we were raised was actually so similar that I felt really comfortable with you and the other friends that, you know, ultimately I, I integrated with a little bit, I like to think, because the small things mattered. Saving on every cent, using the last of your dishwasher soap by diluting it with water. Like, it's called, yes. my mom would call it knowing how to live, right? I think in mm -hmm. Chinese, hui shenghuo. Um, I was not comfortable with the insinuation that I was rich because if you combine, there's these two cultural sides, right? There's like growing up frugal because your parents went through a really rough economic time in China. But then China today and the Chinese culture today is actually super material, right? And kind of capitalist, but like our parents left before that period of time. So they do not carry that over to us. So relative to like the mainland Chinese, I did not care about material goods at all. In fact, I was uncomfortable. Like, why would you waste so much money on any of that? That is so irresponsible, save it. Um, and then instead, um, I, I just had these experiences where people expected me to pay for things. In fact, one person who we both know, and I shan't name by name, was successful into goading me to pay for things at least twice that I wasn't planning to pay for, and that cost me a significant amount of money. Um, and I definitely never made friends with people like that again, but, or, you know, basically wasn't friends with them afterwards, but I still failed to refuse to do so. I don't know if it was because of pride or just, you know, having low capability of saying no, I think that's a part of my personality. But at the end of the day, the second thing around wealth that I got raised with was growing up in Holland. And Holland is, you know, if you, Dutch culture, not, not many people might be familiar, but many people might have heard a lot about Scandinavian culture. And it's similar, like Northern European culture is very much about being equals. 
um, you know, there's a higher tax rate, there's more distribution, there's more social benefits. The whole purpose is to acknowledge that we don't really want a society with hierarchy. Everyone is meant to have their worth and everyone has dignity and we value that. And the counterpoint to that is that if you show off being rich, that's a bad thing. It's frowned upon and you're, there's nothing to be so proud about. In fact, that's considered being bragging and being a show off and just being a nasty personality. Like those are big negatives. So all in all, not only was I uncomfortable around wealth because I didn't grow up that way, but I also had this cultural background that kind of made me look down on it. Um, so I really didn't want to make friends with all the wealthy kids. So I didn't pursue that. And I also hated the fact that other people would ask me to pay for things, assuming that I was a wealthy kid. So I definitely struggle to find my place a little bit. Um, you know, it's counterintuitive. Uh, like I mentioned, a lot of people say, oh, it's college is meant to be an equalizer or it's your one chance to go in social climb. And there I was sitting there going, oh, I want to go the opposite direction. Like I hate any idea of social climbing. It is antithesis to my cultural concept of self. And it's antithesis to what I define to be a good person. And I hate it. So get me away from it. Um, so I did eventually find a group of friends, um, I would say a couple, um, you know, um, you and I met and you introduced me to your group of friends, which I deeply appreciated. And I also had my freshman year friends who I met at international orientation and randomly through chemistry class. I can just confirm that our lifestyles were similar and that we enjoyed similar things and that we were happy enjoying the small things and cooking together. Um, for example, as a way of um, really having a good time as opposed to spending a lot of money on being served outside. And one of the things that jumps out at me first is this kind of assumption that all people with money are the same or all people without money are the same. I think that our income and our sort of subjective understanding of our social standing and class and our habits around money are three related but distinct things, you know, and people who come from a background with having the most can be more frugal than people who have nothing. And I think our relationship with money and with spending and saving is really, it's a belief system, I think, that's dictated by how we see life and our, our philosophies of living. I've heard people with a lot of money say that I save because my ancestors didn't have a lot. And so even though they came up very well in the world, we still carry this sense with me, uh, with us that we can't afford to squander anything. And that sounds like that's something, a sensibility that your family shared. I've also heard the flip side of folks who don't have a lot, who are quick to spend and they kind of articulate a sentiment sometimes that I never know when my next meal is going to come. I never know I'm living paycheck to paycheck and everything is so uncertain and so stressful that the only thing I can really do to make myself happy 
is to just appreciate and utilize the money I have now. And that's also a sensibility that, to be quite frank, I struggled with because, you know, you and I bonded over being very frugal and always saving and always having something aside for a rainy day. And the idea of sort of just pursuing what I wanted without thought of the future was very, yeah, irresponsible to me. Um, And it created some conflicts between some friends and I. And I had to come around to a different way of seeing that if your next day isn't uncertain, if, if, sorry, if your next day isn't certain, if your future isn't certain, then what's the point of saving, you know? Um, And I think that was something that I struggled with too. And so that's one thing I think sort of your attitude towards money is, is a really interesting, I think it has everything to do with family culture and the messages that your caregivers give you. Um, And it bumps up against to your second point, assumptions that a lot of people have about you. I think what's really interesting and you and I have talked about this privately a lot. What's really interesting about China is that when our parents were growing up, um, I mean, there was a famine, you know, people had nothing, people were starving. And then when our parents were coming up in the world as young adults and getting jobs, leaving the country to pursue new opportunity elsewhere, you know, China itself was undergoing a a major economic shift um, and is still, I think, undergoing a lot of that. And so I think one of the things I've heard over time, and, you know, I'm sure different people have different thoughts about this, is sort of that China, you know, people bow to the gods of money and materialism, you know, there's a sense that um, sort of that's where energy has gone because spirituality and faith and other things um, were kind of suppressed during the communist revolution. And so in its place, there's kind of a consumerism, whether that's actually true. And what that means is, you know, something that for scholars to debate. Um, But I think sort of on our end of it, being overseas Chinese, it's very interesting that those assumptions are kind of perpetuated um, even here. And some may have a grain of truth in them and some may be wildly off base as with your classmates who thought you were rolling in money and love to throw it at every opportunity. So I think that's also really interesting, kind of the intersection of wealth and sort of migration trajectory, because I think something common that may happen is folks who grow up here as second generation immigrants and their parents talking about people who are freshly here from another country, from China, as international students or exchange students, and the assumptions that both sides have about each other and their habits, you know. Um, I also really appreciate you sort of talking about being from Northern Europe um, and a different cultural lens through which you interpret money and how it relates to social standing and equality. Um, I think for my family, even though they were very frugal, um, 
things have shifted in that they had so little growing up that now that they are comfortable, there's a sense that they really have to enjoy everything they lacked when they were younger. And so there is a lot of sort of conspicuous consumption. And I think bringing it back to the college campus, you know, how much um, does that carry over and how much anxiety might it create for individual students as well? It's just an open question, I think. Anyway, um, some really interesting observations that you had. Thanks. I I appreciate your analysis of it because I think you mentioned a couple of critical themes that are important for people to differentiate. You know, it's very easy to get riled up or bothered by wealth and social class differences. And, you know, it's often something that separates people, that helps people point at each other as other, when really they are, you know, the the outside factors of many different internal things, not just what you earn, but also how you think of yourself and what you aspire to be and what you aspire to project about yourself. So I feel like this could be one of the more optimistic uh, episodes that we have this season because clearly we chose to talk about it for a reason. It definitely bothered me a lot um, in my experience um, and uh, we've had discussions around it a lot, which, you know, it is important, I think, because these institutions definitely thrive off of money. They thrive off of donations. And that's an inescapable part of the reality there, that money is power and that power drives the place where we are, where we are learning, where we're seeking to become. And it definitely influences, you know, people in terms of what they aspire to become. Um, but in the concerted effort of claiming the place for yourself or claiming an identity for yourself, regardless what your situation might be, how you perceive yourself and what you might want to be on campus, do know that there is a huge diversity of different people, perspectives, and experiences. And the best kind of friendships are I think the ones where you're actually willing to go into this level of detail and discuss something this personal to yourselves. So I would almost say, you know, society is complicated and I definitely did not set out saying that institutions like this should be one way or another. You know, I did share my own personal beliefs about um, equality and the fact that, um, I, I do not and feel like I should not aspire to wealth because that is not a good thing. But that does not mean that I judge others who do. You know, I've been in the U.S. for eight years. Capitalism is kind of the underlying structure and belief system that, you know, underlies the American dream. And I definitely am not, you know, um, looking down upon that or judging that in any way or form. Um, I just encourage people, I guess, to take risks and try and find those friends with whom you can discuss this. And if they are different from you so much, the better, because you will only learn from each other. Um, but you will never be truly close or truly free until you are taking that risk and willing to discuss, I think. I agree and will add something. I absolutely think that these are extremely hard conversations that really help 
us grow. I myself feel like if I hadn't had those hard conversations, it just broadened my perspective as a human being, you know, and helped me have empathy for people who came up in similar backgrounds or different backgrounds. And, you know, all I think we share, we all share the sense of struggling with the human experience and that manifests in different ways, depending on where we were born and when and how. But um, I think being really frank with each other, carving out spaces where it feels safe to talk about it and also being brave at the same time and, you know, talking about some of the things that maybe have felt shameful for you or some of the questions that you have and, you know, to not be afraid to be human and, and um, as Ashley Judd would say, and make mistakes and admit that you don't know. Um, I do actually think I deviate a little bit from you in terms of capitalism you know, this is not an episode about being down with the system per se, right? I will say, though, that um, the American dream, we had already sort of talked about sort of pulling back the curtain and exposing the scaffolding underneath. I think if you are born into it individually, wealth or poverty, that's not something necessarily to feel shamed or guilty about, right? It just is what it is, Um it doesn't dictate whether you're a good person or a bad person, what you're born into. I do think that the system overall and the circumstances that perpetuate inequality and difficulty of be, being upwardly mobile um, are things that maybe we can critically examine, right? Um, and the role that higher education plays in, in perpetuating these systemic inequities Um I think that's a remains a question that maybe we can tackle again. It's not for a single individual to solve, you know, not on any one of us, but I do think it's maybe something collectively as a society that we should really ponder, you know, whether things should be this way and how it might look if it were different. And that's all I'll say about that. Thank you for saying it. Um, I know we've had those discussions. I'm with you. I just did not feel like I could be someone to say this is capitalism and America's fault. Like being I'll an American citizen. Yeah. So I recommend a spin-off podcast maybe for the future where we tackle these discussions. Just dig in for fun because we love doing that. But for yes, now, we do. We'll get back to these BS degrees and break them down a little more in our upcoming episodes. Sounds I think good. that's all. Have Signing a good day. Signing off. <laughs>